Our lesson this morning will be looking at the plan from God. Over the last few weeks, we have looked at the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the wrath of God, and things of that nature. And today, I want us to look at the plan from God. I do, though, however, want to say Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers we have present here with us this morning. We do hope you do have a good uh, day and that you know how much we appreciate all of you. As we look at this plan that we have from God, I want to show this one the need for the plan that is provided by God. Have you ever tried to do something without a real clear plan of action thought through and, and planned out, maybe just one, even in your own head? Uh, I can say without reservation that I have started plenty of things without very good planning, and as you can imagine, they turn out just like you would expect. Things are not planned out and thought through. They turn out uh, in the same way, not thought through and not working very well. But as you think about God's plan for man, it is one that hasn't been put in place, as the Bible tells us, since before time began, which means before creation. God had a plan in place. And I think sometimes we talk about the plan from God, we think about it in a very uh, denominational sense, to use that idea. There are those days when they talk about it, that God has a plan for you, they think of the idea that God has a plan for your life. In reality, God has a plan to save your life. He has put in place a plan to save your eternal soul from eternal damnation. That is God's plan for your life. We want to begin first by looking at the reason for God's plan. God does things, and things happen many times that we find throughout the Bible, for a reason. God's plan includes certain things and has certain aspects and characteristics for a very good reason. And one of those reasons is that mankind breaks God's laws. As we have talked about before, you can't even get out of the Garden of Eden before you see man's problems when it comes to obeying God. Mankind breaks God's law. He's done it in the past. He's done it in the time of the apostles. He's done it today. Man breaks God's laws. Sometimes because man makes mistakes. Sometimes it's by accident. Sometimes it's unknown. Sometimes it's deliberate. Regardless, man does break God's laws. As we look at 1 John chapter 3, looking at verse 4, here the writer says, We are committed sin, also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is breaking God's law, breaking God's commands. So mankind sins when he breaks or transgresses God's law. And law-breaking has always had a price, hasn't it? Now, in a perfect world, if you break a law, even one of man's laws, you have to pay the price to some degree. There's some type of action that comes as a result of your law breaking. Now, we don't, we don't live in a cave. We understand today people break laws, and sometimes things just flat out do not happen. But in a perfect world, they do. And we think about it in a spiritual sense, when you break God's law, things are going to happen. Things are going to transpire. A price must be paid when breaking the commands of God. And for that reason, a path of reconciliation is required. That is, to be reconciled to God, to be brought back to God. When you sin, 
You have to have a solution to correct that sin. We know under the old law, the law of Moses, they had to offer certain offerings to God, which involved the shedding of blood. Under the new law, the law of Christ, Christ shed his blood for all mankind. So when we obey the gospel, we can enjoy the blessing that God has allowed his son to die on the cross for us. We no longer offer up bulls and goats and things of that nature and say Christ died once for all mankind so that his blood can cover the sins of all mankind. When we, and we can enjoy that blessing from God when we obey the gospel. That is part of God's plan for man's reconciliation. It is a path of reconciliation. Sin brings spiritual death, but this can be avoided. Romans 6 and verse 23 reminds us, For the wages of sin is death, the price of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin has a great price. You think about those in the Bible, we find many times that God dealt with them, you might say, very quickly and very strongly. I think about those during the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Some would say that's not very quickly, but it definitely was pretty strongly. You think about Nadab and Abihu and their sins. God dealt with them accordingly. And on and on the list goes. We find that the wages of sin is spiritual death. Sometimes it does result in physical death. But again, we are reminded here by the Apostle Paul that the gift of God is the eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A gift of God. I've heard people say a gift means you don't have to do anything to earn it. That is correct to some degree, isn't it? But do people who don't have birthdays get birthday presents? No. People who don't have who, people who are not uh, you do not have a birthday would not get a birthday present. It makes sense, right? You think, well, that sounds weird. But the point I'm making is you get gifts for a reason, don't you? While we don't do things to obtain, in a sense, the gift from God, isn't that God's way to show His love for mankind? Yes. But His gift is that it is free. But it does not mean that things are not required or expected of us. We give our children gifts all the time, right? Does that mean we don't expect certain things from them? Well, yeah. Our, our husbands, husbands give gifts to their wives sometimes. Wives sometimes give gifts to their husbands. Maybe we want nothing in return. But in some degree, aren't certain things expected? And the, even in the husband and the wife role there, the certain things are expected in the role of parents and children, no matter if a gift is given or not. But we find that God gives a gift here, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, but there's still a certain things required of us. Gift giving sometimes is misapplied here to verse 23. God, we know as we find, for example, requires atonement for sin in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, but without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without the shedding of blood, you sin, you die. That is the law of God. Unless what? An atonement is made on your behalf. And here we find in Hebrews 9, verse 22, that atonement comes to the shedding of blood. He says, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Well, where does that shedding of blood take place for us? Well, it takes place, as we saw a moment ago, for the giving of Christ on the cross. 
Which brings us to our next point. We think about the reason for God's plan. It's because mankind breaks God's law. And because a path of reconciliation is required, then we must ask, what is God's plan? Now, unless we have been, unless we have been living under a rock or in a cave, we all are pretty, probably pretty aware, most of us here, that we've asked him, what must I do to be saved? You hear a lot of different ideas. And we'll just leave it at that. You're going to hear a lot of different ideas. The only one we're concerned about today is what the Bible says is required of us. And what is that plan that God reveals through his word? I mean, no disrespect when I say I do not care what other people think about what is required for salvation. All I care about and all we should care about is what the Bible says is required of us on any topic. It doesn't mean I don't care about their feelings because I do. But there's only one plan I'm interested in, and that's God's plan. What is God's plan? Well, it's a plan that has requirements. It's a plan that has requirements. You think about from Genesis to the end of the, end of the Bible, through Revelation, we find that there are conditions littered throughout all of the Bible, is there not? What was the condition of Adam and Eve staying in the garden? In a very broad sense, listen to God, right? Stay away from the tree, which he told you to stay away from. Listen to God. Tend the garden. Got it. That was it. Obedience. We find that same idea and concept throughout the Bible. You go to the book of Joshua, Judges, Deuteronomy, to the New Testament, we find over and over again that everything will be well with you if what? You obey God. If you obey. Requirements and conditions. Requirements must be met to be able to take advantage of God's plan. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith is a requirement to have heaven as your home. And when we talk about faith, as we'll talk about more this evening, we're not talking about, is this a simple acknowledgement? We understand, as he says here in verse 6, that's part of it. We acknowledge who God is, but he doesn't stop there, does he? Faith is the idea that we are we love God because of who He is. We love God because of what He requires of us, because what He has done for us, what He continues to do for us, because His love we find revealed to us throughout the Bible, how much He loves and concerns is concerned for us. For that reason, we put our obedient faith in God and we do so willingly. Willingly. I'll be honest. I'll get nervous sometimes when children of a certain age want to be baptized because I don't know if it's the children who are in their mind ready to be baptized or if it's the parents who want them to be baptized. I've been here in the building before and gotten called more than once saying, we want you to baptize our child, if it's a son or a girl, whatever it was. I just said, well, why? Logical question, right? Why? Well, we think it's time... What does that have to do with anything? Right? If they do not understand certain things, it doesn't matter what their age is, they're not ready. 
And if their age is, if they have that ability to understand, if they're not willing to do it, then it doesn't matter. Our obedience is done on a willful basis. Everything we do, we have to do it for the right reason. If we do things just because we think that's what others want for us to do, then it doesn't change anything. It is a willful action. That faith is a willful. We put our faith or all in God because of who He is and because we want to be followers of Him. Living under the New Testament law, we are to be obedient to God's law as it's found in the New Testament. Thus man must put on Christ at baptism in order to receive the forgiveness of sins and have atonement by the blood of Christ. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. As we used to say sometimes when I was in school, if this isn't highlighted in your Bibles, I encourage you to do so. But Romans 6, 1 through 4 is all about coming to Christ and putting off sin. When the Apostle Paul says here, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? When people say, well, once you're saved, you're always saved, go to Romans 6 and ask them about verse 1. Because he's asking that very same question. Can we continue in sin and just be saved still? Paul says what in verse 2? Certainly not. The King James says, God forbid. No, that's not faith. For honest, that's a phony, pretend faith, isn't it? We find throughout the Bible, aren't phonies condemned? I mean, the Pharisees are brutalized by Christ when he brings out the truth of God's Word, doesn't he? They come to him, they mock him, they, they chastise him and try to correct him because he does so some, some many things on a Sabbath day, but uses just the truth of God's Word, his own commands, and once he do, he sends them away with the truth. They don't like it, but he does. We find in verse 2 here, Certainly not, how should we who die to sin live any longer in it? Meaning, when we become a Christian, we can't just go back to doing what we once used to do. We can't just continue in that sin, that continual action. He says, or, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, how do we get into Christ? He doesn't say as many of us are were as prayed into Christ. He doesn't say as many of you as accepted Christ. What does he say? As many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we were buried with him, that is who? Christ, through baptism into death, that just as Christ is raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When do we die to the old man at baptism? When do we become that new creature in Christ? When we rise up from baptism, right? Look what he says there again in verse 4. We are buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead, don't we going to follow that example? Just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, a new person. That is part of God's plan. What do we have to do prior to being baptized? The Bible tells us we need to hear the message of God, don't we? We need to believe that Christ is the Son of God, just as we saw back in Hebrews chapter 11. Do we need to repent? Well, verse 1 would tell us you can't continue in sin, so we have to repent, don't we? Do we need to confess Christ? 
John tells us there were leaders who believed in Christ, but because they feared, feared the, uh, the, the other Jewish leaders and feared being cast out of the synagogue, they would not confess him, right? Were they followers of God, followers of Christ, rather? No. They knew who he was, but they weren't willing to confess him and acknowledge him publicly that he was the Christ, is the Christ. We repent of our sins, and we are what we are, baptized. And what happens at baptism? Look at verse 3. We are baptized into Christ Jesus at baptism. We think about God's plan for us. It has certain requirements. We think about these things. There are, these are not things which we cannot do, things that we are beyond our ability to, to finish and to accomplish. A plan, this plan from God is a plan that includes mercy, atonement, and forgiveness. God wants to save mankind. For this reason, He made a way for mankind to be reconciled to Him. Why would you make a way, a plan, a pathway for someone that you care nothing about? Well, you wouldn't. That's why God's plan reveals His love for man. Look at Romans chapter 5, looking at verses 8 through verse 11. Romans 5, verse 8 through verse 11 says, But God demonstrates His what? His own love toward us. How does He do that? Through His plan for man's salvation. His plan for man's reconciliation. It's the same idea, isn't it? Bring them to God. His own love toward us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him, that is, Christ. For if when we were, sent for, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. How do we, how are we reconciled to God? How are we brought from where we are now to where we need to be? By obedience. By obedience. Look again at verse 11. He says, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, who's the whom? Christ. We have now received the reconciliation. It is through Christ. And putting him on in baptism, in which we come in contact with his blood, that our sins are washed away, and we are reconciled and brought to God where we need to be. And it should be where we want to be. Think about this for a moment. When God commands for one, it applies to all, doesn't it? We understand that the Apostle Peter was an inspired man of God in Acts chapter 2. And at the end of his lesson there, we have in verse 37, end of his sermon, the Bible says, now when they heard this, this is the words of Peter, the Bible says they were cut to their heart. And said to Peter, the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What are they asking? What do we need to do to solve the problem of sin in their life? How can I be saved? Look at verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
That gift today is implied in the way that we receive salvation. We think about verse 38. Why did Peter say that? You know, I have a study Bible in my office, and I don't have a problem with most study Bibles, but you have to be careful because it is what it is. It's written by men, right? Those notes are not inspired. But just below the mark, below, if you remember all these study Bibles, I don't have it up here with me. But the bottom half of the page will have notes, right? And the bottom half of the page I've highlighted, and the question is asked, is Peter saying you must be baptized to be saved? And their comments say no. Really? Is that what Peter said? Because verse 38 sounds an awful lot like be baptized for the remission of your sins, right? How do you talk that away? Well, you go back to your theology and you twist Scripture. But when Peter says in verse 38, repent, be baptized, he says exactly what he means. Peter was an inspired man of God. So when he said repent, be baptized, who else was saying repent, be baptized? God was saying repent and be baptized. Think about this for a second. Galatians 3, verse 26 and 27. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Isn't it interesting? This is the same person he said what he did back in Romans chapter 6. It's Paul again, isn't it? You notice there how Paul and Peter agree that baptism is necessary for salvation. Who don't, people generally speaking do not argue about you have to hear to be, be able to obey. Well, some will. Some will say, well, you're just born and saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. But you cannot obey what you have not heard. So you hear, you believe what you have heard. You what? You repent of your sins because you see we must repent of our sins. We saw back in Romans 6. We confess. Because we know we cannot. If we're not willing to confess Christ with our words, if we're not willing to confess Him with our actions, if we're not willing to say out loud, I believe that Christ is the Son of God, are you going to be faithful to God? If you can't say that out loud because you're afraid to do so, <coughs> confession is a part of God's requirements. And then we are baptized for the remission of our sins. And we find here in verses 26 and 27, what does Paul say? For as many of you as for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, doesn't that mean that only those who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ. What about those who were not baptized, Paul? Does he have to say, if you're not baptized, you're not in Christ? No, because he just said in verse 27, didn't he? He said it. It's the law, we say sometimes, of exclusion. Those who are baptized in Christ have put on Christ. Those who are not baptized in Christ have put on Christ. That's why it's dangerous to hear people say today, well, there's just an outward sign with inward working. No, it's not. It's a part of God's plan for man's salvation. Why did Peter say you have to be baptized? You didn't really have to be baptized. You know how many people were baptized in Acts chapter 2? The Bible says approximately 3,000 people were baptized that day, right? Would you baptize 3,000 people if it wasn't really necessary? Would you go through all that ordeal to make sure all of them were baptized if it really wasn't part of God's plan? Why did he do that? 
I don't believe it's just Peter. Along with anyone and those who may have helped him baptize all those individuals, it wasn't necessary. Because it was. You know, all those times where individuals were baptized and how, how for, just for example, how much easier it would have been just to say, you know what, we can baptize you next week. You're already saved now. No one told Paul that, or Saul, rather, on the road to Damascus, right? Remember they told him what Christ told him? The Bible says he was led away until he would be told what he must do. He was led away blind, right? Until Ananias would come and tell him what he must do. Paul was not saved on the road to Damascus. He was saved when Ananias came and told him what he had to do, which included being baptized. You know, God's plan for man's salvation, it doesn't end with baptism. You know, sometimes we have those those stairs, and I know, I think Chris and I, others have talked about this as well, where we have those stairs, and the final step is baptism. Isn't the final step remain faithful? And it really shouldn't end there. It should be remain faithful, and the steps just keep on going. Because it's a continual action. There's a lot of things in life we could do just once, Remaining faithful to God is a continual way of, it's a way of life. It's a continual action. Think about this for a second. About, as we think about some lessons for us today, man has never reached heaven without God. Man has never reached heaven without God. Man has tried, hasn't he? Many have tried. The Israelites tried to do things their own way many times and failed. The phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, is found several times in the book of Judges alone. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, they did what they wanted. Did it please God? No. Think about Proverbs 14 and verse 12. There's a way that seems right to man, but it ends the way of death. Man cannot go to heaven on his own. There's a lot of things that seem right. How many of us can say we've started to do something in various parts of our life? It could be as simple as tasks. We think, well, this seems like the right thing to do. You only realize later it's not the right thing to do. Do you know there are certain parts today? You know, usually when we, when we talk about tightening an object, we say righty tighty, lefty loosey. You know what it means when something is reverse threaded? It means you turn it the other direction to actually tighten it. There are certain things in life that certain things you have to t- turn the other direction. It seems right because it's what you've always done. But certain things are done differently. And we think about getting to heaven. They're not done. It's not done on God's or in man's uh, way. It's not done according to God's plan. It's done according to uh, man's plan, not God's. Uh, it's done according to God's plan, not man's plan. God's plan is a requirement. It is not an option. There is no way to gain benefits from God without obedience to Him. Think about John 12, verses 42 and 43, which I referenced earlier there. Man cannot reject God or His Son and still go to heaven. What do they say here? Even among the rulers, many believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees that did not confess them, lest they should be thrown out, put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Of all people, the Pharisees who they are afraid of. Why possibly some, some of the biggest phonies you'll ever find in the Bible were the Pharisees. Now, there were others. There were others who, in John chapter 6, when Christ was speaking, went back and walked with them no more. 
They weren't truly dedicated, were they? I don't think we'd say they were phonies, but they did walk away from Christ. The Pharisees had the appearance of being righteous, but they were far from it. You remember what Christ said about the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and Sadducees, you're by no means be a part of the kingdom of God. It means you cannot live up to their phony standard and go to heaven. They appear to be righteous, but they were not. Look there again, John 12, 42 and 43. The Bible says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. If faith alone or belief alone is enough, aren't those rulers saved in verse 42? They say they believed in him. What was the problem? They were afraid. They feared man more than they feared God. And what happened as a result? They did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. But they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Think about this for a moment as we look at Luke chapter 10 and verse 16. Notice with the words of Christ when he says here, He who hears you hears me, and he rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. What is Christ saying in verse 16? Anyone who rejects the message of God rejects who? They reject God. Anyone who rejects God rejects Him, right? You notice how many times He uses the word reject in verse 16? He who rejects you rejects me. He rejects you rejects. He rejects me rejects Him who sent me. It means if you reject the message of truth, you reject not only that person, but you reject God and you reject Christ who is sent by God. You cannot reject the truth and still have heaven as your home. God has shown man the path to atonement, resulting forgiveness that grants the ability for us to have heaven as our home, but only if we obey. Think about Proverbs chapter 6. Or excuse me, Proverbs chapter 16, looking at verse 6. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for, for iniquity, and by fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. You know, there are many reasons, to say the least, one obeys the gospel. Is fearing God one of them? According to Proverbs 16 and verse 6, yes. Why do we fear God? I don't think it's just because we fear hell. But fear is oftentimes spoken of using the, the context of respect and reverence. You reverence and you respect God for who He is. But also, we again, to deny the fact that we fear hell, well, we should, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we fear that place? The Bible tells us, but the worm dieth not and the flame is not quenched. I don't want to go to that place. I can't even begin to imagine. And the Bible gives us glimpses of heaven it gives us glimpses of hell. I think if we're honest, the Bible references hell a lot more than it does heaven. Because hell is a place we want to avoid. I understand the book of Revelation, in some ways, gives us physical descriptions to help us understand how beautiful heaven is in a spiritual sense, but heaven's not a physical place. 
But why do we think, why do we obey God at least partly out of fear? Because there's a certain place we want to avoid. But I hope more than that, there's a certain place that we want to find ourselves on the day of judgment. We want to be able to say when we send forth Christ on the day of judgment that we have done all that we can to be faithful to God. And that we can hear our great and awesome God say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear. And the only way we're going to do that is if we obey the 